I think, uh, Sarah, we've made a lot of mistakes, right? So, so the key is uh, try it, collect data, and uh, and you know make sure that you fail fast enough and you fail relatively small. Now hold that thought. Finding a service solution that helps you keep customers happy can feel impossible. Like trying to remember the name of that guy you literally just met at a networking event. HubSpot's all-new service hub can help, with their service solution part at least. It brings service and success together on one powerful platform. With an AI-powered help desk and chatbot to help you handle your frontline tickets. So you can scale support and drive retention and revenue. We love the sound of those things. Visit HubSpot.com service to learn more. In the 1980s, the average American bought 12 articles of clothing a year. Today, that number is 68 and rising. Fast fashion is about making trendy clothes cheap and disposable, democratizing high fashion at scale. The promise of globalization was that it was going to be a win-win. Consumers in the richer world would get cheaper goods and the poorer would get jobs and the opportunity to work out of poverty. Fashion and textiles are 5% of global GDP. Yet somehow, this 3.8 trillion industry is one of the most undigitized, unsustainable, inequitable industries in the world. Fast fashion is killing our planet and slaving children and yet we don't even know it. In comes my next guest, Ankiti Bose, on track to be the first Indian woman to co-found a billion-dollar startup, Zilingo. What started as an aggregator of small fashion retailers has since expanded to provide transparency across the entire supply chain, from fabric producers, mills to brands. Under her leadership, Zilingo has raised over 300 million from the likes of Sequoia and Tamase, scaled to over eight countries with over 10,000 merchants and 7 million active users. This week, we unpack what it takes to scale in Asia and the real business of fashion. You don't want to miss it. Welcome to Billion Dollar Moves, the show for the top U.S. and Asia founders, funders, and execs making billion dollar moves that are shaping our future. From the growing pains of a unicorn journey to IPO, the question of impact and returns, to scaling a venture capital firm, we go real deep in the world of venture and business. I'm your host, Sarah Chen. Now let's get started. It is such a treat today for us to have an amazing, amazing guest with us today, Ankiti Bose. Ankiti, how are you? I'm so excited to have you here spending Friday night with me. I'm good, Sarah. Thank you so much for having me. Excited to be here. Great. Well, Ankiti Bose, Forbes 30 under 30, Fortune 40 under 40, and you've been named by Bloomberg as one of the 50 people defining our future and defining the year by Bloomberg for two years now. And all of this started with just an idea in Chatuchat Market, the flea market in Bangkok that's really popular. And many of us have ideas on vacation, but you took this all the way through to where you are today. Tell us about that. Why this idea and why this time? So uh, this was in 2014. I was on a holiday in uh, Bangkok with a few of my friends. And uh, some of you, I'm sure, have been shopping in Bangkok. And I'm sure you've observed the just the sheer number of, you know, small designers and brands who are trying to sell you thousands of things. And uh, looking at them, I kept thinking that how are these guys and gals going to survive 
when uh, everything digitizes because you know who's doing the digital education for these businesses who's going to help them sell online who's going to help them source online who's going to help them you know really truly digitize their business and that's really how zilingo started although over the last 6 years uh, the business has transformed and evolved a lot from mm-hmm. what it started as but at its core you know at our heart uh, our mission has always been and i think it will always be how to make um, you know digitizing their businesses less intimidating for small businesses and how to make the entire process of building a fashion business fair transparent and sustainable So that's where that's where we started and uh here here we are. Yeah, so you know, I want to dive a little bit deeper here. I mean, you know, I think it's it's one thing to pick out a trend and one thing to see it, you know, firsthand on the on the ground. But you and Andrew, your co-founder decided over a beer as as good things always come to be that this was the idea that both of you wanted to bet your savings at that point on. That's right. What what gave you that conviction to say This is the right one and of course you were uh previously with Sequoia and would have had some visibility on on what's working and what's not but what really sort of gave you that conviction that okay let's do this one let's keep going at this one So uh so Dhruv uh, was, was my co-founder is my co-founder and our CTO and he was you know we were both in Bangalore at the time and we had this discussion we said look why don't you find engineers in bangalore and start building a product let me move to southeast asia and let me go and see if i can do some sales and find mm-hmm. some merchants that can use these products let's get feedback and let's see where it'll be most useful so i actually spent a lot of time with our initial founding team in bangkok in jakarta in manila like all over southeast asia trying to see if what we were building was even sort of sensible and i i remember the day we uh, got our first 100 merchants on board and it was before we had launched um, you know uh, as in you know the platform could not be used for transactions but we had mm. pitched and sold 200 merchants to use us mm. and we told them look you don't have to pay us anything now but if you can use our platform to sell some goods we'll we'll take a commission later so just 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 sign up with us mm. and uh, dhruv was building his team remotely in bangalore we were probably uh, six or seven people in bangalore at the time and maybe six or seven people here in southeast asia mostly mm-hmm. based out of bangkok company headquartered in singapore so it was a complete uh, you know it, it, it was a circus right <laughs> <laughs> and i was i felt like you know there was a lot of chaos but there was a lot of growth in that chaos and you know um, uh, not not to be a cliche in quote game of thrones but chaos is a ladder so we use that chaos totally. in the system in the in the whole market in fashion in general to actually just quickly build products that could be used by merchants to digitize more and digitize better and uh, mm-hmm. over the years i think we kept evolving every 3 th- months every 3 months we um you know we looked at the feedback and we said you know no we need to change what we're doing or we need to edit slightly the path that we've taken uh, mm-hmm. so i think he has been to not be married to our answer but to be married to the problem I I love that. I really love that not being married to the answer but you know thinking very deeply about the problem and and with that you know you talk a little bit about your transformation, your evolution or as we can also call it uh the pivot, right? So 2 years in uh very early on as some would think you decided yeah. to pivot the business model in, in quite a big way to think about what you were doing differently. Tell us a little bit walk us through that decision making process uh and what made you come to this decision 
so um this is uh, you know this is it's a funny story because uh, when we launched the company we thought what southeast asia needed was uh, um you know not just a platform to help merchants sell to consumers but also that consumers needed uh, you know platforms to discover fashion what happened between 2014 15 and maybe you know towards the end of 16 was that one thing was very clear that very high quality startups with high quality engineering teams lots of capital were addressing the gap between merchants and the end consumer what was clear though was that the gap between manufacturers and that person that is selling on those platforms was completely you know unfulfilled so you know on on the one hand uh, you know globally you have amazon you have shopify which helps merchants sell online locally in southeast asia there was uh, obviously shopee tokopedia lazada and so many other platforms that were all doing a fantastic job of connecting a merchant or a brand to the end consumer and we really felt like you know instead of uh, competing with those platforms why not build a tool that is complementary to the fact that these companies are causing such amazing growth in the you know um, e-commerce and tech ecosystem in the region and in doing that what we discovered was that our market from a supply side was of course it was southeast asia and south asia because these were the merchants we were working with but what we realized was that not just the brands in southeast asia and south asia wanted these products right everybody wants these products 80% of all fashion exports globally originate in asia and people want alternatives to china people want products that are made in bangladesh and vietnam and india and sri lanka and cambodia and indonesia and so on they want more transparency we are able to provide that because you know we're a tech company and we have visibility right up to the factory floor and we discovered that actually our you know our target addressable market is not southeast asia fashion it's global fashion that's made and hmm. made in southeast asia and south asia so it completely changed our perspective we we realized that you know we were doing something much bigger than ourselves and what we had ever imagined and it made sense to evolve uh, and uh, and sort of take uh, up the bigger challenge and i feel like you know if we hadn't done that and there was just 2 years in uh, like you said and now but for you know majority of our existence now we have actually been a b2b company and um and and i'm very proud of the way we sort of navigated that because it's not that's not easy but we yeah. stuck our ground to the fact that you know here's the opportunity money can be made this is where the market is going as e-commerce companies grow obviously the merchants that are selling on those platforms will also need tools to source right yeah. um so so that's how it all happened and then walk us through then you know i mean making a pivot and and talk thinking about it is one thing but execution as we know of a great idea is everything and executing the way you did uh across southeast asia which as you and i joke sometimes it's not really a thing because it's so fragmented it's very different uh <laughs> how did you go about it what was the strategy here and you have now uh you've expanded to over 8 countries right with uh, i want to say over 500 employees um walk us through how how did you get to the stage of what first you know one foot in front of the other um i think uh, sara we've made a lot of mistakes right so so the key is uh try it collect data and uh, and you know make sure that you fail fast enough and you fail relatively small right 
Right. So if we wanted to make, you know, let's start with the decision around going B2B or going big on B2B opportunity in fashion or going deeper and deeper into the fashion supply chain as and, and you know, digitizing that and, and sourcing from factories and so on. We started small. We tried to work with the merchants that were already on the platform. We uh, created proof that there were very good unit economics in doing that. We created proof that, you know, the contribution margins those transactions were generating were actually better than what anybody in e-commerce in the region was seeing. And and once we had that and we had sort of de-risked the question of does this work and we had de-risked the question of can there be product market fit? When we could prove that, that's when we went to all our stakeholders and, you know, everybody around the table and said, look, this makes sense. Can we please sort of do more of this and can we grow and expand it in a sensible fashion and I think uh, people came around but it it's important not to I think it's important not to just sort of strategize it's important to execute enough um, make mistakes iterate uh, and then execute again and you know again iterate launch something if something is too perfect you're already too late to launch it I mean, you know, uh, perfection is very costly. So so I think it's just about, um, uh, you know, if it's good enough, try it, learn from your mistakes, iterate, launch, get the feedback, and just keep sort of um, uh, learning and growing. So one of the key sort of values for our team over the years, and again, I say that, you know, um, because I feel like we've learned from our mistakes only, and I mm. feel like we've learned only from our failures, uh, is 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 just that you know the the cult the culture has to be or the key value has to be of growth not of not of metrics that'll come mm. but the growth of yourself because everything around us in the world is changing so fast today if you're not learning if you're not making mistakes then you know you're going to get left behind and make talking about um, making better mistakes I, I often use that with with my team as well let's make better mistakes tomorrow right we learn from from each one and it's important uh, because if you're not making mistakes you're not trying and you're not doing uh, which is what you should be doing um, so to to that question on metrics there's a lot a lot of attention on hyper growth a lot of attention on valuation you know the fact that you're next I, and even i use it right asia's next unicorn it's it's all the hype uh, but i know you're very grounded in making sure that your team uh is held to a standard that is the zilingo standard talk to us a little bit about how you've cultivated this and, and what matters to you now you know i think um uh, I mean, I'm not, I'm not, I don't, I don't think valuation or talk around valuation is all bad because I think it helps us generate interest in Southeast Asia as a region. It has helped us uh, attract uh, capital and, uh, you know, retail investors uh, now very recently. So, uh, uh, you know, public markets in the U.S. are excited by Southeast Asia. So that's all good stuff. Um, so, uh, so I think there's that, but, um, but getting too distracted by uh, valuations in the private market or where, you know, uh, valuation where you raise money and, uh, you know, letting your teams feel like that is a victory is mm. is definitely problematic because, uh, you know, the way to think about valuation and fundraisers is that you're preparing for a really long marathon and now you have really good quality shoes, but you still have to work very hard. You have to train every day. You have to do the running, right? Yeah. You have the shoes, so you've not won the marathon because you have the shoots. So mm. uh, I'm oversimplifying it, but but I think that's the right way to think about it. And um, and and I hope that as the ecosystem expands and Southeast Asia is building products that are not just relevant 
here, but are globally relevant, are globally noticed. Uh, right. We all keep this in mind that, you know, we are extremely, um, uh, we are all very hardworking, of course, not just not just folks at Zilingo, but the entire ecosystem. But and we are getting the recognition in the form of valuations and capital. But it's mm -hmm. what we do next in terms of delivering solid outcomes from this part of the world, which will be truly what holds us in good stead um, and, and, and leaves very good examples for the next generation of entrepreneurs who I hope build 10, 50, 100 X better outcomes than us. Right. So what what metrics matter to you now? What what are you holding your team uh, to the fire on? At this stage of your business, so right now, uh, I think uh, you know one of the one of the key uh, tailwinds from uh, the pandemic has been that obviously digital uptick in sourcing and supply chains has gone through the roof. So we've actually mm. uh, benefited uh, quite a bit from the fact that uh, we don't have to explain to businesses why they need to source digitally. Uh, they they understand that now they need to do everything virtually. They can't, you know, go and meet an agent who shows them swatches of fabrics and then go to factories and so on and so forth. Right. So you have to be, you know, you're sitting in a, a room uh, in the U.S. You have to run your entire business. The fabric, you know, the cotton's probably going to come from Bangladesh and the polyester might come from China. It'll all go to a factory, perhaps in Bangladesh, um, you know, maybe Vietnam. Right. And then it right. finally got to get shipped into let's say an amazon fba uh, uh facility so all of that needs to happen virtually now people have discovered over the last one year that it can happen virtually and actually it happens more efficiently and more cost effectively so it's been mm -hmm. it's been a good journey for us in in that sense and keeping that in mind i think our focus has shifted from just having a growth mindset to uh, taking it for granted that the tailwinds are strong enough to deliver growth to us so we have to think about profitability and uh, you know long term relationships with brands and driving esg as a very important goal with those brands so we we probably didn't think about this as deeply as we do now but now you know we and i think a lot of different players across the fashion value chain including brands and factories and technology players like us have all realized that it's actually easy to tie ESG uh, into uh, our, our growth, revenue, and profitability metrics. It's actually quite easy. And in the long run, it's more sustainable uh, for our business to include those in our immediate goals. And uh, and and yeah. I actually love that. I love that you know we wake up in the morning and, and we have a shot at leaving the world a better place than we found it. Yeah, and and you're really you know dropping some gems here and and giving me really a, a good uh, segue into what I want to talk about, which is exactly uh, on point of ESG and hopefully you know ESG as as I like to say you know we we need to be driving returns through diversity through sustainability and it needs to be integrated as part of business and I think we're starting to see that uh, you know in the US and Europe it's big uh, as as you're probably seeing with your global clients but also it's now trickling down to Asia and, and we're very happy to see that from an investor standpoint uh, but the hot topic of the day which is something that you're tackling is fast fashion right fast fashion is unfortunately the now uh, and we don't talk Talk enough about the ugly side of it. The fact that we're enslaving children, the fact that it's killing the planet. It's horrible. As you said, horrible, horrible things are happening. Uh, and yet, you know, you and I are wearing clothes that we may not know uh, comes from those unfair practices. So what are you doing to make sure that your company is not contributing to this and in fact is addressing this in a way that is sustainable? So uh, I think, Sarah, this is a great and uh, uh, very important topic, right, to talk about. I think um, putting 
you know, putting on the hat of most business leaders, including you and me, uh, if we say that driving ESG or solving for climate change or doing any number of these things are is 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 something that we should approach from a standpoint of morality or a standpoint of uh, you know CSR, I actually think that that will then take too long, perhaps you know, and and we're all going to mm-hmm. live medical sciences progressing quite well we're all going to live to 100 maybe more um our uh, you know we will face consequences in our lifetime of of these poor decisions around sustainability and climate change and if, if things are not changed enough very fast so our view on this um is is that first of all how do you link esg to your financial goals as a company now uh, we are in fashion of course our customers are brands and businesses across the board and uh, we won't force them to be sustainable but right. what we can force them which is the baseline is responsible manufacturing which is that you know make sure that you are working with factories where the practices can be verified by us mm-hmm. preferably um wherein the right compliance checks are happening and so on and and you are right that uh, until you know perhaps there is complete and unquestionable authenticity in in these practices or you know perhaps we use blockchain for a lot of these processes it's perhaps you know we can't be 100% sure but the fact right. that technology platforms like us can at least assure the brands that listen your product was actually made at this factory in this line with this mm. kind of sort of efficiency metrics already takes the bar much, much higher than what it is right now. So that's, I think that's the baseline, right? So we would say every brand should do that. Every brand should know and should be able to tell their customers that the product was made here. It was not made by a child. Uh, it was made by a laborer who had proper working conditions, proper health insurance, and so on and so forth. So I think that's the baseline. The next, uh, and you know, obviously sustainability and ESG is baby steps, right? So we all have to be on this long-term journey. We can't say everything needs to be fixed in one day. It's probably going to take five or 10 years to even do all those steps that I'm describing. But the second step where we do assist our customers and brands and uh, factories that work with us is around, uh, you know, the process of manufacturing itself, which is Mm -hmm. perhaps, you know, a, a t-shirt, uh, making a t-shirt consumes 2,700 liters of water. Uh, so, you know, perhaps what are you doing with that water? Are you wasting that water? There's, it's very easy to not waste it or recycle it or use recycled. Um, uh, then there's, you know, what dyes are you using? Are they toxic, non-toxic? Uh, is the fabric biodegradable or is it not biodegradable? It doesn't even have to be have to be a sustainable fabric. You know, there, there's, there's, mm-hmm. there's a lot of basic things that we can do to reduce the damage that we're doing uh, to uh, to the climate and uh, and the key thing here is that if these practices can be followed uh, such that they are actually net net cheaper or higher margin to do for the brand itself and i'll tell you how that will happen then right. the brands have no reason to not do it right so for that uh, uh, you know uh, what needs to happen is that the product needs to be aggra- uh, attractive and attractively priced Right. So, for example, in, in name any fast fashion brand, if they were to give you a product which looked as good as, uh, you know, any of the very attractive uh, dresses or tops or jackets that you would anyway buy from them. And it was the same price or perhaps cheaper because all these agents have been cut out by the fact that the supply chain is now digitized. So there's no agents who are leaking away, you know, commissions and stuff. And it was sustainable. There would be no way that if two products were exactly the same amount of attractiveness and price that you would pick the one that is polluting, right? 
it is only when the product is less attractive or more expensive or both is when the consumer is confused right so our point you know is and our efforts are all around how do we remove that confusion forever how do we make esg be driven by good capitalism right how can we make the products um attractive to the customer attractively priced and therefore when that sells through more the brands have absolutely no reason not to adapt themselves to a supply chain that supports that right and right. and and I, the last step like the last step as of today what you know is happening in fashion what fashion businesses can do is around using sustainable fabrics right if you remember 5 years ago sustainable fabrics used to be like you know, they looked like a potato sack nobody wants to wear <laughs> No matter how much you're saving the world, you want to wear something that's nice and feels good, makes you look attractive, is reasonably priced. Now, if because sustainable fabrics have advanced so much and the uh, process and the technology behind making those fabrics have have improved so much, we're able to provide fabrics that are both attractive, uh, cost effective, and you know don't look like a potato sack. So right. people want consumers want it when consumers want something, brands will make them. and we will be able to use good capitalistic processes and and principles of making profits to drive esg goals and i think that is the fastest way to do it appealing to morality is 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 good but mm-hmm. you know merging that with profitability will make it all happen much faster Right. So Ankiti, you know, I think this is all um, you know, good framing. I I uh, respect that and I think it's a very important journey that all of us have to go through. Uh but t- talk talk me through this um one second and and entertain me here. Yeah. You started with um, you know, the the idea of uh the Bangkok's uh, chatuchat market uh merchants which are uh, you know, in some way copying right what was on um the the high streets and and the fashion runways and that also contributed to the fact that you know as consumers now i think we're trained in some way to be as you say we're in this world of inferno and desire right it's about hope it's about <laughs> what what we want to see ourselves in uh and you know we're we're encouraging especially you know in in the business that you're in right the more people buy the better it is uh for you right and uh this creates a whole you know vicious cycle of consumers that are uh driven for the wrong reasons are then you know contributing to the bad stuff so how are you thinking about this as a business and of course i know you know part of the game that you're playing here is the data game right so um i i recently watched the social na- uh social dilemma i believe and you know it's all about the algorithms uh creating you know ripple effects into yeah. our practices right so algorithms that are damaging how are you thinking about your use of data for your customers how are you thinking about um uh, making sure you're not contributing to the problem so you're absolutely right like we always say that the world is today an inferno of desire and uh, we are constantly uh bombarded with so much stimulating stuff right like if i go on instagram or uh, any social media actually basically i'm i'm consuming something that um uh, and i'm telling the the app something about myself in terms of what i'm consuming and of course that data is going to be mined and used in a way uh, to sell something to me later now um fundamentally i think humans have you know we have uh, uh, reached a point where we are at peak consumption right so we are consuming a lot and mm-hmm. um the reason fast fashion has actually become the way it has and it's it's a little bit of chicken and egg i'm not i'm not blaming big tech for it because big tech 
human desire and fast fashion all work together to make that happen now i'm not saying one thing is good or bad but there is a there is an answer there is a solution right should be should we think about it that way and for a consumer who's becoming more and more conscious there is an answer that does work for the consumer is better for the planet is quite okay for the fast fashion companies and the big tech companies and and that is in identifying that this consumer set and i am i'm not um you know I'm, i don't believe that everybody will transform but there will be a consumer set which is very conscious about their purchases is going to consume less is going to consume higher quality though is going to waste a lot less so we will not have so much going into the landfills and you know so much of recycling to do or so much waste and so on uh they will force they will force brands and therefore supply chain and tech companies like us to create more options that are more long term more sustainable and they will perhaps be willing to pay more for it right like if you if you think of uh, you know in in the beginning you said right that uh the number of times people are buying fashion has grown exponentially over the over yeah. the few years but if you think about you know if we if we scale these numbers in terms of how much dollars they are spending in total uh mm. and what about inflation per capita income over time what you'll see is that actually we're buying a lot of cheap stuff on an average like we're buying a lot of cheap stuff wearing it once and throwing it out right. so Uh, you know as long as a conscious consumer segment emerges that is buying lesser but better is forcing brands to have their conscious labels not just for namesake and lip service but as serious revenue lines and and you know as you and I both know all the large fashion companies and conglomerates today do have that right they have their sustainability goals they also have their conscious lines those lines actually generate a lot of profit So as long as we can encourage a fewer frequency higher margin more responsible line of products that when finally are used up and thrown away they can either be recycled or they're biodegradable and they're not filling up landfills that can solve the problem so so is it is it possible to solve yes is it being aggressively solved today perhaps not uh and um, and you know uh, the the question becomes then that if the consumer wants this why should big tech or big fashion solve uh solve it at all because the consumer wants to spend every day but then the question really becomes that hey as the consumers become more and more savvy and and you know gen z is more savvy i, I mean um the our generation like the millennials are perhaps they we think we're savvy but the gen z is very savvy so i think what would be very smart for brands is to prepare that the conscious consumer you know the consumer that genuinely listens to and believes uh greta thunberg and is 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 guided by uh her philosophy is going to perhaps shop differently and when they have more and more purchasing power perhaps some of these trends uh, that the millennials have set might change and 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 i think the number one way to do that is to be super ready to make attractive well priced products that are sustainable with last longer feel this little right. bit less frequency but are biodegradable not filling up landfills and and from a profitability standpoint i don't think there's any reason for for fashion brands to worry as long as they're ready but if they are not ready and they're you know selling all sorts of uh, pollutants and polyester products that don't uh, degrade and so on then then of course those brands will run into trouble now hold that thought 
Talking to Loud, hosted by Chris Savage, is brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. On this podcast, Chris Savage, Wistia CEO and loudest talker, takes you inside the minds of entrepreneurs as they share the hilarious, informative, and most challenging aspects of building more human brands. Everything we love here at Billion Dollar Moves. Now, an episode I loved recently was the one with guest Joe LeMay, jiu-jitsu loving entrepreneur and co-founder of rocket book he talks about how an airplane epiphany took him on a wild ride that started with a shark tank flop but ended with a 50 million dollar exit you know that's our jam listen to it talking too loud wherever you get your podcast yeah, yeah. And, and uh, definitely the future generations, I'll hope here and a lot of them are tuning in. And I know there's a huge trend for ESG, even from a capital standpoint, uh, for globally, 40% of all capital in the next couple of years uh, will be focused on sustainability investment. So, you know, I like to joke with my investor friends, if, uh, you know, a lot of people say, uh, yeah, let's do that later, let's wait and see. But if you're able to, you know, say no to 40% of capital, then fine. But if not, you're really losing out an opportunity here. And I'm hopeful that, uh, um, the next few generations, we're seeing millennials and the next generations, and I, I see my guests coming on shortly here as well, but the next few generations are demanding more from brands, right? They are more conscious about, hey, what's the impact here of what I'm doing? And and in fact, in working with companies, even what the number one choice of why millennials choose and Gen Zs choose to work for a company is the purpose. Uh, not so much, you know, it's not about money anymore. So really love that. And my next question is, you, you talk a lot about your global uh, involvement, your global expansion. And I know you do a lot of business with, uh, you know, the, the two giants that we look to. And my question to you is, as you're looking at China, for example, you know, years ago, I think the it was 10 years ago that the per capita income hit 4,000. And, and that, you know, really created a huge ripple effect in terms of what happened with e-commerce. And now, uh, years later, I think that number has more than doubled in terms of the per capita income in China. And of course, in Southeast Asia, a lot of entrepreneurs, a lot of us look to the trends in China to see what's going to happen in Southeast yeah. Asia somewhat, right? Of course, localized and all that. What, what is this telling you about what you're going to predict for your markets that you operate in? And, and what is your thesis here on the future of e-commerce and the consumer behavior? You know, I think um, a lot is said about this, but in, in general, um, the we, we cannot even imagine to what extent um, e-commerce in, in general is going to become a way of life in Southeast Asia. It already is uh, extremely important. If you think about an average Southeast Asian consumer, they have leapfrogged the entire, you know, dial-up uh, generation that, you know, perhaps, uh, for example, you had in the US, right? Which is yeah. that whole uh, connect connecting your uh, person. So, you know, most folks in Southeast Asia, for example, have actually never heard that because they had 3G and then 4G and now 5G on their phones as the first interaction uh, with the internet, which is amazing if you think about it, because, uh, you know, that's the baseline. They have had Facebook on their phone, uh, the biggest user bases of Instagram, the, you know, the the um, by city is, I think, it, um, 
it's all in Southeast Asia. In fact, I think Bangkok is one of them. Uh, Jakarta mm-hmm. is one of them and so on. So, so um, you know, just in terms of the power of putting the internet in everybody's hands uh, with payment options, which are, you know, so many and so deeply integrated into our daily lives. And, and you know, there are several, there are three big, uh, uh, you know, giant platform companies um, in, in, in Southeast Asia that do everything from e-commerce to, ride hailing to payments i think that they will continue to drive this um and 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 every shift everything in the uh, world right now is a tailwind for their growth right and there's mm. there's perhaps like many many times multifold growth uh for them now what that, what what that does is actually it educates not just you know who are our consumers our consumers are people that run businesses our consumers are people that start businesses are working in businesses you know the consumers of these consumer platforms are people that are doing other things in their daily life right so they're running a warehouse or running a fashion brand or running a shop or uh you know working at a telco or or whatever so on and so forth and educating them on how to use um the internet and its various a multitude of use cases is actually fantastic for any other business that's also trying to grow in Southeast Asia. So the fact that these giants are having so much growth and so much penetration is actually incredible for um, other businesses, not just in retail, but I would say across the board. Now, uh, what that means is, you know, in a nutshell is that I am extremely excited. I think, you know, if we think that the Southeast Asian startups are now big and relevant for the world. I think we have like 100x more to go from here. Because if you just think about, you know, the the scale of the population, uh, the per capita income, the rate at which it's growing, how much more there is to go, right? So if you really think about the true addressable market by each of our companies, and you think about the the part which is still offline and underserved, um, you know, unlike unlike certain other big markets, um, uh, is there's, there's, there's just so much yet to do right like we're we're all one percent done so that's very exciting i think the next five ten years will be multifold growth from what we've seen in the last five years yeah so a lot to look forward then at some point you know you'll you'll not only see the replicas from you know we talk about u.s copycat models into asia but uh, i think you pointed out at some point that you know in asia because it's so different there are challenges that are that have never been thought of before right in in more developed markets that hey you know these models uh could be what we bring to uh, the more developed countries that could work out as well and and the rise of super apps and also want to understand i i know you are lend you started actually lending from your balance sheet right so embedding finance into your entire uh process talk to us a little bit about how you made that decision i mean that's not very normal to say okay let's uh land from our balance sheet very early on how did you come to that decision so we don't actually we don't lend a lot from our balance sheet the idea is very much to um encourage other financial institutions banks and fintech companies to either work with us, take our lead, or let us follow them as they lend mm-hmm. to the platforms that are using our platform for their operations. Now, the reason it was important to build this out and 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 do this is because actually in B two B transactions, um, a credit period is a given, right? Uh, in an offline B two B transaction. So if I were to buy a whole uh, you know bunch of products from you in the offline world and physical. Uh, you know, physically go to you and inspect the goods and so on and, and buy it from you, 
I would probably say, hey, you know, I'll give you an advance. Go make the product. When it's done, once you ship it, once I'm satisfied with it, I will, uh, you know, give you the rest of the money. But in the meantime, how do you manufacture if, if you know, all the payment is not made to you? So, so there would be either, you know, you would have an LC facility or there'll be a bank which is going to come in or a financial institution that is going to come in with a plethora of options to finance that, right? Pre-shipment and then post-shipment and so on. Now, all those interactions had to be replicated for the online world and for the digital experience. So the whole old school method of working with, you know, two businesses, working with agents and so on, and the entire flow of goods and money had to be digitized. Now, to expedite that, we worked closely with, of course, with our own money, but also with our partners, um, fintech companies, as well as banks, uh, and now large financial institutions uh, that can lend in multiple countries uh, to create these frameworks that helped us basically create the sort of virtual sampling, shipping, payment, and sort of validation structure so that we could do this across, you know, factories like the fabric suppliers in one country the factories in another country the brand is in another country and they're selling on a platform in perhaps you know a, a fourth country and uh, it was interesting i think um, you know we we felt like we would have to be front and center and departos to really understand how to do this um so we did that and um, it actually successfully drives a lot of trust on the platform in terms of payments because neither does a brand want to pay up front fully uh, and of mm-hmm. course, you can't expect that suppliers will, you know, fund it entirely themselves and, and you know, hope that hope and pray that they get paid. So you have to solve for all of these trust issues that are somewhat solved in the offline world because people tend to work with people that they know, you know, from multiple generations or have like these 10 business relationships that they work with. To replicate that trust in the online world across hundreds or thousands of factories and businesses, I think we had to, you know, take our, uh, you know, dip our toes in it ourselves as well. But broadly, we don't take risk on our own balance sheet as much. So the idea is very much to sort of have us as a partner there to have the fintech companies or financial institutions lend. Right. And it's good to hear. I mean, you took that first step, right, of, of testing it out and then getting partners on board. So very, very smart choice there. And now I want to turn to something uh, slightly different. And you and I are passionate about this. We uh, do this in, you know, by our example and, and hopefully, you know, in, in the work that we do and, and how we speak about it. But let's talk a little bit about female founders uh, and fundraising and just uh, the fact that I think, I don't know if you agree, that female founders tend to be held to a higher standard. Have you felt this? And what are your views on what we need to do here? I mean, you're one of the very, very few women that will be hitting unicorn, well, has hit unicorn status. Uh, Talk to us a little bit about your views here. I think, uh, Sarah, here, uh, there's a generally true statement that you made, which is that um, women are held to a very high standard. And uh, I think things are materially better today than they were five or 10 years ago, right? So we are all, of course, standing on the laurels and the hard work of the women that came before us. And uh, the responsibility for us is to obviously, you know, bridge the gap even further in terms of, uh, you know, access to capital, opportunity, et cetera, for women in, in, in general, women founders in particular, so that obviously the women that come after us have an exponentially better uh, outcome than us. Now, in that, I think, um, uh, you know, two, two, two key things uh, I, I keep observing is that, um, and, and, you know, I know we've spoken about this before as well, is that if we can create a lot of access to capital and we can uh, subsequently 
or parallelly concurrently create a lot of access to coaching for women and mentorship and you know uh, the the right kind of coaching and mentorship you know not the one that says you need to be perfect before you have an mvp but the one that says it's okay to fail make mistakes go out there be brave ask for money ask for what you think you're worth and so on that's the kind of you know uh, guidance that we need to make sure that more women have and uh, of course the disadvantage there is that uh you know there aren't those many women to be role models or mentors in the first place and it, this could become a chicken and egg problem or we could all just take it up on ourselves right now and hold ourselves and everybody around us to very high standards of making mm-hmm. sure that diversity is a, is a key goal for us in our everyday lives and i i really think that it's about coaching mentorship and capital these are the few key things that will uh, that that will solve for this that it's the only way to solve for this Yes. And, uh, you know, I, I really like that of uh, not aiming for perfection because the cost of perfection is too high and you need to get out there. I mean, we want more women out there to be failing and, and testing and, and make, making mistakes, right? I think you and I talked about this, the fact that, uh, you know, sometimes because there's so few of us that we're afraid of uh, doing the big thing, right? And that's, as you know, well, that that's the hyper growth that VCs want that also hopefully we all want for our companies. And talking about large empires and building uh, our own enterprises, empires, and, and leading forward here by example. I'm so excited for the next segment. I am going to be bringing some special guests here, and I'm excited to bring on my very first guest. So these are fans of yours, Ankiti, who have requested to appear on this special episode. And I have Kay Chow, Kay Chow from Malaysia, who's the managing director of Dressing Paula, creating luxury apparel for professional women, and who has led total transformation for their traditional family empire of brands. Kay Chow, over to you, your question. Hi, Ankiti. Hi, Sarah. Um, yeah, I just kind of want to ask, you know, like for ourselves in, um, you know, in Asia, especially or at least in Malaysia, I think a lot of people t- just touching to, you know, when you talk about the whole ESG aspect, right? Um, uh, so right now, even internally, we're trying to, you know, pivot and, you know, explore that uh, direction a little bit more. But I think one of the things that we always have a roadblock in is how to measure it right um how to measure the impact um and i think that's one of the biggest problems as well in the fashion industry so i'm just wondering you know if you know have you ever thought about how technology itself can help measure the environmental impact that we have on on on, on fashion yeah uh that's a great question kecha in fact I think that if we don't hold ourselves responsible to some metrics, then it'll be super hard to track whether we are doing any of the things that we think we're doing or we claim that we're doing. Um, so so I, I, maybe I can give a very sort of fashion-specific answer. And I think this answer perhaps varies for different businesses. Um, but the easiest thing to uh, truly count is the carbon footprint and the... Um, and asking your manufacturer or your digital platform that you're sourcing from, which is sourcing the manufacturer for you, is that what are the fabrics going in? What are the practices? Where is it made? And who's making it? Now, any um, any sourcing partner should be able to qualify those. Or, you know, for those of you who have their own supply chains, 
you know, your own teams will be able to qualify those. And then we measure that, right? So we measure carbon footprint and then we hold ourselves to, let's say, standards of um, how much of the fabrics that we used were biodegradable, how many of them were sustainable, how many of them used what level of, uh, you know, let's say polyester or something that we don't want to use much of. And um, uh, and perhaps, you know, we can't be super hard on ourselves, I think. So we shouldn't say that in one year we will become 50% better. I, I think that's, it's not realistic, right? So so maybe we identify two or three areas. Like like I said, you know, 100% of our products should be responsibly manufactured. There should be no little children in factories and, you know, all the practices should be good and labor loss followed and so on. The next step of maybe carbon footprint, we say, hey, you know what? We want to get 10, 15% better than last quarter or or so on. And in terms of sustainability, uh, uh, in terms of using sustainability in, in, in fabric selection and so on, perhaps, again, we give ourselves two to five years to turn the whole thing, uh, you know, uh, sustainable. And perhaps even then we have to make some, um, uh, you know, clear decisions that let's say all the cotton we want to use is sustainably sourced or is organic and so on. But perhaps, you know, we give sort of clear goals and. Um, one of the one of the biggest ways to fail permanently at ESG is, I think, to set too high lofty goals, and uh, you know, uh, not be able to achieve them. So I think baby steps, like we always tell all the brands that work with us, like baby steps. Forget about the past. Let's take baby steps. Let's do things one quarter at a time, one half at a time, one year at a time, and you know, let's set like a five year goal. But let's have very small, like, let's not waste water. Let's start with that. Or let's start with, can we identify which factory we're working with? Can we make sure that all the factory workers are identified? So so I think it's it's in, it's in these small measurable steps that then give us also a lot of positive reinforcement. Um, I, I feel like if the goal is too big, uh, it's easy to fail and it's easy to feel horrible about failing at it. And it's about the quick wins, right? Yeah, definitely. you're seeing that K in your business as well. Yeah, definitely. I think, you know, the past few years, you know, even pre-pandemic, we've just been testing mm -hmm. out uh, with the customers without actually even telling them, right, to see whether they're okay with the pricing okay. and stuff like that. But I think what my question to you is more like, you know, on the Zilingo platforms, right, uh, especially your B2B platforms, will there be uh, in a way kind of like, if I were to say, uh, order something from Zilingo and Zilingo will help me kind of identify, hey, you know, if you buy from uh, uh, this merchant or this, uh, uh, yeah, from this particular merchant, will yeah. they be able to tell me, you know, the impact that I'm, that I'm, that I'm putting down, uh, that I, yeah, that I'm causing, right? Um, I think that's probably one of the things that we're, we're missing yeah, in, in technology game. Yeah, absolutely. I think I think we uh, what we can do today, what we're trying to do a lot with brands is when we interact with them at the out, you know, just at the very beginning, we're saying, hey, you know what, if sustainability is a goal for you, then we would recommend that you work with these 50 factories where we can do so and so things and work with these fabrics, the 2000 selection of fabrics, because then we can, you know, make sure that uh, uh, it is truly what you think it is now. Where the challenge is, is that where, you know, the supply chain relationships exist for many generations, it is a little bit harder for us to then cross verify if they're not already on our platform. So so we already do the first and I would love to uh, do this with you and maybe we take that offline. Um, yeah. But yeah. yeah, we would love to get involved in this in, in Malaysia as well. And I think it's need of the hour. So we should absolutely do it. Definitely. And, and you have the right person here who's leading the charge with Kate. Thank you, Kate, for crushing. Glad to see you and hope you're doing well. 
All right. And next we have Rushmi Narendra, who's calling all the way from New York. Uh, who's a sustainability entrepreneur, a rock star, and a media entrepreneur as well, who is your fan. Ankiti, over Hello. to you. Hi. Hi, Ankiti. My first question is, what does your competitive landscape looks like today? Like, you know, there's thing about you have to sustain and grow sustain the growth today. And I understand sustainability, especially in Asia, is such a fragmented thing. And I think it you have to have an approach of, you know, it has to be a roadmap approach. So uh, that's looking forward, of course. But what are your challenges today and what are you looking forward for tomorrow? Great question. I think, uh, you know, the reality is that we are still up against all the traditional businesses, every traditional agent buying house and so on. Um, the, hmm. the pandemic did give us a slight leg up because, you know, people were not able to digitize their processes as quickly. Uh, but, but fundamentally, I think, uh, from a, from a roadmap perspective, the, the greatest challenge would be, um, that how do you create trust in a market where trust is built based on relationships that have existed for decades? And, um, you know, whether that is between brands and buying houses and agents and factories or uh, or just between the people that run those various businesses and to make them make objective decisions. I think actually uh, one of the things that help, though, is um, is focus on sustainability and ESG, because when those answers are not available in the networks that people have, they're willing to try something that a startup is doing. Yeah listen to a new person so uh so I think in the roadmap the greatest challenge is uh you know getting into trusted relationships between buying houses agents and and factories and brands but would you say alibaba is your competition uh do you think are you afraid of their might <laughs> even for a uh, interesting interesting question so alibaba is uh, more of a outside of china at least it's more of a uh, you know classifieds and b2b marketplace model ours is a much more of a you know because we have a shop floor saas uh, platform which is literally running the factory shop floor linking right. the product right from their yeah. up until yeah. their in the warehouse it's a very different experience but there's a lot to learn from baba like we are always uh, in awe of them and completely impressed by them so we we you know we every time we can get our hands on uh, them or get their time we we try to use it but i think it's more complementary in that sense because their vision is very um, uh, you know different than ours we are trying to connect the southeast asian and south asian factory to the brands that are you know globally present but we are hand holding the entire process and it's happening on our platform right from the shop floor uh, of the factory so thank you rashmi thank you from new york rashmi and now uh, the final segment this is my favorite billion dollar questions for ankiti bose so quick uh, statements to the questions number 1 common misconceptions about you uh common misconception about me that i'm married uh, that you're married yeah uh, some people think i'm married to my co-founder which is really odd uh <laughs> different countries yeah well single and ready to mingle but i have to say you know that what actually that might point to is the fact that uh women may not be taken seriously the fact that we're in business is because we're married to the co-founder let's change right. that number two <laughs> highest high ankiti what's your highest high so far 
Um, highest high is uh, probably the first day, you know, what I was referring to before when we hit 100 merchants on the platform in Bangkok, mm-hmm. very much in the first year of the business. It felt like, okay, we're building something here. There's something here, uh, you know, valuable. Lowest low. Lowest low would have to be COVID. We've had multiple cases, critical cases in the team. Uh, you know, we had to structure the organization. Um, you know, net uh, net business wise, while I, you know, several times I said it was good, but uh, just seeing our our team members and their families get so sick uh, was definitely yeah. the lowest low. Best advice you've been given. Best advice uh, I've been given uh is uh is is exactly you know um that uh, uh, the cost of perfection is too high and better is the enemy of good favorite tool or hack for productivity favorite tool or hack um a, a, a very late night plan your day next day or very early in the morning uh just just have a set of outcomes that will make your day successful and be super realistic about it otherwise you go into a loop of uh, you know, sort of negatively reinforcing yourself. Yeah, super realistic for a pathological optimist that I know you are. Very interesting. Biggest fear, Ankiti, what is your biggest fear? Um, my biggest fear uh, today, I think, um, is, uh, is, is, is that, you know, well, I would say I'm a paranoid person, so I'm I'm very fearful that there is another 23-year-old somewhere who's planning to disrupt my business. <laughs> mm, very good. Advice for founders tuning in. Um, be resilient. Whenever you look at a quote-unquote successful founder, you're only looking at 1% of their life because 99% of every day and every minute is a struggle. So don't get disheartened. Be resilient. And, and don't be married to your solution. Be married to the problem. Very nice. And finally, the lucky number eight, you know, I am Chinese after all, Malaysian Chinese. Lucky number eight for the billionth dollar question. What next for the future of Zilingo, your vision for the future? Uh, My vision for the future is that every, you know, every direct-to-consumer brand, every direct-to-consumer brand is going to be what drives the future of retail. It will not be traditional retail. It will be direct-to-consumer brands. And I hope that every single one of them works with Zilingo. Perfect. And with that, Ankiti, thank you for spending this power hour with me. I think we really covered a lot of bases here from your business scaling, you know, the challenges of Southeast Asia, all the way to your most personal and biggest fear. So thank you for that. And to all of you listening, really appreciate your time. You know, I'm sure we took away a lot of gems here and you can be taking away more gems like this from founders and funders and executives just like Ankiti that are killing it, that are scaling it and doing the good work. And thanks so much for tuning in this week. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and follow our socials at Sarah Chen Global to get the latest news on the show. I'm Sarah Chen and you've been listening to Bill and Dollar Moves.